0: My name is MD.
1: My name is Kyle.
0: And you are listening to The Completist, a podcast where two music fans come to terms with the albums and artists that have shaped pop culture. Welcome to episode 15, and today we will be discussing the Foo Fighters' 1997 album, The Color and the Shape. Of course, The Color and the Shape is the Foo Fighters' second album. The first album released in 1995, self-titled Foo Fighters. This is coming off the unexpected success of that album. That one had some radio hits, uh, music videos, Big Me, of course, with the whole Mentos thing. Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah, very memorable from that time.
0: The Foo Fighters has always been primarily the vision of Dave Grohl. Mm-hmm. Because of that, you can't really escape some of the comparisons to Nirvana just because of his association i mean dave grohl was the drummer of nirvana during the nevermind and in utero
1: yeah and he contributed very heavily to the content at that time so any um kind of knee jerk response to compare it's fair but in a certain sense i think at the time i know that i would fall into the category when i was introduced to the foo fighters to maybe unfairly attribute mm-hmm. certain certain comparisons when in essence Dave likes loud guitars, he likes loud drums he likes loud vocals that's just what he likes to do, that's what he did in Nirvana, so that's what he's going to do in the Foo Fighters yeah,
0: and so always the comparison has been there When whenever people talk about the Foo Fighters usually in the same breath they have to talk about Nirvana in some way, so we're just going ahead and getting that one out sure. of the way it's important to know where they came from because I think that's part of the Foo Fighters story though
2: Definitely. I'm not scared i never tell you this.
0: And this album, for me, the color and the shape, really feels like the Foo Fighters, and Dave Grohl in particular, kind of blazing his own trail. And kind of, you know, where you look at an album like the Foo Fighters debut, and there's some similarities in terms of some of the grunge rock, some of the riffs, and some of the the kind of punk rock influence there. Mm -hmm. But this is much more polished. There's a mix of ballads and big rockers. Certainly builds on some of the loud, quiet dynamics that you get from Nirvana, Mm -hmm. by way of the Pixies, of course but with more polish and a clear pop sensibility that I don't know that is necessarily there and as full of gloom as you see in Nirvana. Right,
1: so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Um, we had previously discussed, of course, Nirvana's career, mm-hmm. and within that discussion we were already getting a sense as we were dissecting some of the uh, sonic elements of In Utero, suspecting that even at that time Dave was probably continuing to play a bigger role and we could hear some certain melodies in those tracks that I think would definitely be attributed to Dave's influence at that time. In fact, a lot of what we know as the Foo Fighters' debut record would have been uh, formulated and written uh, back in Nirvana.
0: So The Color and the Shape was a big album in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of record sales, a lot of um, notoriety with the music videos. I know Everlong got a lot of attention with, mm-hmm. with kind of the Michelle Gondry you know dreamlike surrealistic aspects going on in there with like the big head coming out of the person and and (laughs) all all that. So anyway it was it was very popular and it got a lot of attention in the mainstream. I think it's important to just kind of lay out the the makeup of the band even though there's obviously going to be some stories that go along with that as we get further into the album but you've got Dave Grohl who's the lead vocalist rhythm guitarist um, and ostensibly also plays drums mm-hmm. on much of this record. Pat Smear, a bit of a weird name, but he's, a, he's the lead guitarist, had done some stuff with Nirvana, mm-hmm. comes from a band called The Germs. Nate Mendel plays bass. He had been a part of Sunny Day Real Estate, along with William Goldsmith, who was the drummer for Foo Fighters at the beginning of the recording process for the album. He eventually leaves uh, in the midst of recording. And um, and Taylor Hawkins will eventually come on as they're touring later mm-hmm. with this record, Kyle. For me, this is an album. You know, I got into it surprisingly. You know, most of my '90s stuff, I kind of got into a little bit after the fact. I yeah, feel you like
1: kind of late to the party on some things. I know.
0: You know, I I came late on like the Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana and all this stuff. But Foo Fighters, you know, I remember seeing the video for "Walking After You," mm-hmm. and. You know, it was around this time that I kind of decided, I want to pick up that record. Uh, It wasn't that song so much. It was really Everlong and Monkey Wrench that kind of got my attention and made me want to go out and buy it. But kind of the dynamics there of something like a walking after you just really stuck out to me. And so I went out there and I bought it and I kind of felt like I was stepping out on my own because I didn't have any friends around me who were like, oh, yeah, you need to listen to the Foo Fighters or Mm -hmm. whatever. I kind of felt like I was blazing my own trail a little bit and just kind of stepping out there and discovered an album that I ended up really loving, like all the songs on there, you know, so I came for like Everlong and Monkey Wrench, but it ended up staying for things like Enough Space or uh, Wind Up or February Stars. Mm
1: -hmm. My story is very similar to that in that I believe I... Well, I don't believe. I mean, I can confirm that I already had preconceived ideas of what the Foo Fighters were. I was not terribly thrilled about the debut record. Yeah. Um, I had heard a little bit of I'll Stick Around. It definitely didn't hit our airwaves here in Tupelo. Uh, our format didn't allow for that sort of thing. Yeah. But Big Me came out, and I thought it was just kind of sticky. And mm-hmm. I thought it was nice, but it didn't really get my attention. So I felt like I had already kind of made up my mind about the Foo Fighters until this record. And so when the color and the shape came out, It totally changed everything I thought about the Foo Fighters. Again, I didn't have anyone surrounding me confirming that either. Like None of my friends were terribly excited about it. Again, I think they generally fell into the category of, you know, what's Dave Grohl going to do? All he did was play drums for Nirvana, so what could he do with a guitar in front of a microphone? And I feel like at the time I was trying to make the case that it was much more than that. You know, coming to songs, of course, like Everlong, Monkey Wrench, exactly like Mm -hmm. you said, Hey Johnny Park, uh, the emotiveness of the verses and that, just hearing his voice. This album uh, very much solidified much of the way I would continue to view pop rock in general. You know, the, the way that it perfectly married a lot of the underground elements with a lot of the loud, screamy vocals but with a very traditional kind of 70s rock inspiration, Cheap yeah. Trick, Led Zeppelin, the guitars are very clear and cutting, drums very deliberate, but the vocals all very singable. I think at the time, Dave Grohl was very much a hero, so to speak, maybe a personal inspiration to me. Someone who knew how to play his cards really close, not feeling like he had to show the world everything all at once, mm-hmm. you know, being the drummer in Nirvana. Uh, That's what most of us knew him him as, that long-haired, kind of toothy-grinned drummer (laughs) in the back of Nirvana, but turning out to be a very nuanced and well-rounded singer, guitar player. That was very inspiring to me at the time and, and I think affected the way that I presented myself musically. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was looking at some old photos the other day from probably one of the first kind of legitimate gigs I had as a okay. as a band back when I was a mid-late teenager. And mm-hmm. I see a shirt. I'm wearing a color in the shape shirt. Oh, yeah. So, I, you, know, you know, we go way back and I, I think that kind of shows where I was at the time and I was trying to express that to everyone. And so, yeah, that was definitely a big encouragement to me at the time.
0: Well, track one is "Doll," and this is, you know, really a low-key intro, but it's kind of a nice album opener, I feel like. I mm-hmm. mean, it definitely works on the loud, quiet dynamic, if you think of this as co- kind of the quiet to the loudness of Monkey Wrench, which is track two coming up but, you know, you start out with kind of that 90s EQ effect, kind of that telephone sound.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, boost all the mids, cut uh, the lows and highs, and it puts it right there.
0: It was almost a cliche of a lot of 90s stuff, you know, like the intro track or something would kind of have like that phoned-in kind of sound. Right. I know, um, you know, Collective Soul and their self-titled album from 95. <laughs> That's a deep cut. Yeah, the song Simple starts off with that kind of uh, telephone effect on the
2: song. You know,
1: it would just be a simple trick, kind of pre-Pro Tools, kind of thing just to give a slightly affected vocal to jump out at you in a slightly different way than the rest of the record yeah
0: once everything else kicks in you know it 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 makes it feel
1: big when everything else comes in. exactly
0: the chord progression here something about that just feels kind of quintessential Foo Fighters to Mm -hmm. me you know I mean I know it's it's G A minor but I think it's the B to the B flat
1: That was one of the things I noticed even early on on the first record of the Foo Fighters with Dave. He had a kind of a quirky sense of guitar playing. You know, he obviously had the big power bar chord Mm -hmm. thing. And then every once in a while you get these like ninths. Yeah. Or you get this kind of movement that I believe clearly was just kind of a good indicator that the guitar was following the vocal. Or at least it had this kind of natural... Uh, path with the vocal, I'm not sure which came first, but they, it would give it his own unique kind of stamp on it. The
0: other interesting thing about this song, I mean, it's it's a short song, you know, it's short and sweet. Thankfully. You've got a really weird kind of fluid <sighs> bass line going on there, so like the chords <laughs> is just strumming. But the bass line is like this whole kind of fluid movement all over the the neck of the thing, and it's just it's kind of wild when you when you hear that bass kick in.
1: Right, and we're going to probably re- revisit this idea uh, as we go through the record. But Nate Mendel, formerly of Sunny Day Real Estate, I think even at this point claims that he was pretty busy on this record, uh-huh. and since kind of leveled out on the later Foo Fighters records. But there's a lot of these nice kind of moving bass parts across the whole record that. Are kind of outside of what you would expect yeah. from these
0: arrangements, and I think part of that, to me at least, testifies to how how carefully crafted and how much detail exists in each one of these songs. Even though it, it doesn't feel as off the cuff and just kind of like banging banging this thing out in your garage sort of thing. I mean, and it's definitely not like, the
1: way Dave would have played the part either. Which right. is cool to think that Dave approved it because mm-hmm. uh, uh, we know good and well that he had his thumb very firmly on every aspect of this album. So it's cool of me to think of Dave going, that's cool, I wouldn't have thought of that. Right. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have thought of it.
0: So there isn't a ton to talk about with this song, but I do do think that in addition to kind of being a nice, you know, sonic album opener, it also works thematically for what he's trying to accomplish with this. Um, He's in the midst of a divorce. He's just gone through a Mm -hmm. divorce in 96 with Jennifer Youngblood, and so you know the color and the shape I had never realized until I kind of started researching for this that this is this is one of those post-divorce albums and you can get that with a sense of some of the frustration some Mm -hmm. of the rage the the arc of this thing and the way that that Dave has described it coming together at least in terms of the sequencing is he wanted it to be to kind of feel like a like a therapy session where you kind of have these kind of quiet moments and then you, you kind of open up with, with all your emotions and you get into it mm-hmm. and then you kind of settle down for a second and then you get back into it again. So some of the loud, quiet dynamics just from song to song, track to track kind of carry that, that idea of, of really working through the issues of coming out of this relationship and what the future is going to look like.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see that despite how vague some of the lyrics are, mm-hmm. um, I definitely get that emotion as the album flows.
0: Track two is Monkey Wrench. This was the first single that they released in April of 97. Really cool riff. I mean it's a great descending guitar line Mm -hmm. and you know for my money I mean this is a pretty perfectly constructed rock song.
1: Yeah I agree. Um, It's probably one of my favorite Foo Fighters songs of all time, actually. I mean, I hate to say that so early in the conversation, but it really is. I think this is what really kind of solidified my overall view of the Foo Fighters.
0: Yeah. So you've got kind of that big strumming thing, but then on the tail of this, you also have that whole fall in, fall out Mm -hmm.
1: thing. Those great uh, echo vocal things. Yeah,
0: almost just like a reprise, but, you know, that's... That's part of the rich kind of construction of this song. Um, You know, thematically, you know, there's the whole thing. What do you do when all your enemies are friends? Mm -hmm. I don't want to be your monkey wrench. One more indecent accident. You know, it's angst and defiance, but it has this sarcastic, real dismissive quality to it. Um,
1: Which probably sums up Dave—sarcastic <laughs> and dismissive.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's part of what we've always exactly. loved about Dave—is yeah. kind of you know, there's there's a goofiness to them, and and there's a there's a real humor that you always got with him, and it was always there in the videos, and I think that's part of why people connected with the Foo Fighters. At least I know it was for sure, me. Sure, it's very endearing Yeah, because you just he makes you laugh as well as kind of able to step in there and give you a really legitimate rock and roll number like this one. To
1: me, in this song, when we get to the bridge with that long, just out of breath vocal thing that I'm not entirely sure how they accomplished that in production outside of just multiple layered takes, I'm not exactly sure. I know that when I sing along in the car, I'm out of breath pretty fast, but I feel like this is where Dave really just kind of breaks out of his shell Mm -hmm. as a singer and really just kind of stakes his claim, not only in the Foo Fighters, but just in the rock world in general as just a unstoppable rock and roll force right and I hear it in that bridge and I feel like it all just kind of bursts out
0: right I mean you get a sense of his own identity here like this is not
1: in a way that you didn't get anywhere close on the other record yeah yeah exactly and you mentioned actually the melodic guitar line and the song that really yeah. defines the song. I believe I understood it to be one of the last components of the song that I, I think Dave actually was a little nervous about. I think oh, he, okay. I think he thought it was kind of hokey. Yeah. Um, in fact, when you kind of play it by itself, it sounds a little goofy, but when you cram it into the context of the song and put it on rock radio it just drives and you know you can't separate the two now but i think he was actually a little hesitant interestingly (laughs) enough about that part initially yeah that's funny because some
0: some guitar riffs you know are just instantly playable you know everyone will just sit down at the guitar and kind of you know noodle out that little riff but like this one you know like you said there's some guitar riffs that just kind of live in that space where it kind of needs the, the greater context of mm-hmm. what's going on with the band and the drums and the rhythm and, and even the rhythm
1: guitar and everything, too. So, And even on this song, we uh, this is not new for Dave, but he likes to double his vocals a lot. He did okay. that on the first record. The traditional example of doubled vocals is Elliott Smith. But that's not necessarily what we're getting here. But typically what happens when you double or triple your vocals, it's probably a singer who may not be terribly confident with their voice, Mm -hmm. and they're just trying to give it a sense of depth and body and excitement. And that can be a little cumbersome in some cases. I think it gets cumbersome on the first record, especially when it makes things slightly unintelligible. Yeah. But um, he uses that on the record, but he uses it in a way, especially on this song, that gives it a lot of force, and it really gives you all that excitement that you want in this song. But it's kind of a trademark Foo Fighters thing, at least early in their career.
0: Yeah, and this, this song kind of feels like what you want out of a Foo Fighters track. And I feel like it's one of those that... That probably resonates with people and would would have an influence on people who would later try and emulate something what the Foo Fighters is doing
1: uh, yeah definitely in the early 2000s one of my favorite bands uh, out of Arizona a band called Jimmy Eat World released mm-hmm. a great record called Bleed American and for me Jimmy Eat World probably would have attracted me maybe subconsciously to Jimmy Eat World is a lot of these color and the shape elements in right. fact the title track for from that record, Bleed American, to me, is monkey wrench all over it.
2: Yeah,
1: I can hear it. For you've sure. got the stomping drums, mm-hmm. you've got that kind of open string, kind of riff thing, the verses, the chorus, everything. So you can definitely hear and feel the impact of a color and the shape on a song and a record like that.
0: Track three is "Hey Johnny Park," and really for me, Kyle, like this is one of the songs that won me over and told me that there was something really good and interesting going on on this album beyond just kind of the the hallmark singles. Mm -hmm. And you know that great riff, the the drums on this track, Mm -hmm. and you know at the time I didn't really recognize what was going on with the drums. I just knew that I liked them. I didn't I didn't realize that. Part of why I liked him is because I love the drums in Nirvana and the guy, sure. you know, Dave Grohl. Like, I just assumed that he wasn't playing drums. but I didn't know that he was.
1: Right. Yeah. We, we're getting all of the elements that we were already falling in love with, with Nevermind and In Utero, those big, mm-hmm. roomy, boomy, just the, the bigness of the yeah. drums. And, and it's all there. Yeah, because it's Dave. I've
0: always thought that the first chorus line was... Simple, simple, not it's impossible. I mean, you know, there's some unheard li- or misheard lyrics, I guess. Well, it.
1: I think that speaks a little bit to the doubled vocal thing I mentioned. Uh-huh. Sometimes that can give an unintentional or intentional kind of ambiguity to oh, what's okay. being said, because yeah. they might be kind of overlapping a little bit in timing, and you're and you're not getting a really clear idea of what's being said, but that's a good example of where you would get those kind of doubled vocals.
0: Yeah, okay. well, that makes sense, because I would never heard it until I read it, and then after I read it, then I could hear it. But, right. you know, it's just one of those things you're sitting there trying to listen and it just sounds like simple, simple. Right. Well,
1: this is another example too. You were talking about how you continue to rethink your ideas maybe of the Foo Fighters and expound mm-hmm. on sort of their impact uh, with a song like this. Uh, when the verses come in this song, sort of the emotiveness mm-hmm. and the way it all comes down, again, very simple dynamic of the loud, quiet thing. But, just his take on the vocals and kind of the sincerity and passion that he's delivering those vocals. Again, I know I said it earlier, but continued to be an encouragement to me of just like, maybe I can do that. You know, not that not that I was able to achieve it at that level, but it, I don't know, just hearing him do that and kind of bear his vocals that way. I don't think he's doubling them right there, actually. I don't know, it it was just one of those weird things that kind of struck a chord with me. It was very encouraging, and I was like, well, maybe I can sing. In fact, sometimes when I was in high school, um, I would have to unexpectedly take the lead vocal, uh, Mm -hmm. depending on the gig, um, and depending on our lineup and who decided maybe not to show up for the gig or back out of the gig or whatever. um, Sometimes I would have to take the vocals, and I feel like I was leaning on kind of a Dave Grohl thing to do that. Uh, In my mind, I was like, well, if Dave can do it, I can do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's got a deeper, a little more of a baritone. It's not as raspy as something like like Kurt Cobain and Mm -hmm. Nirvana. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's pleasant enough. And really, like, I guess one of the things I like about it is that he seems to write songs within his vocal range. And so he's never really stretching himself in the way you might get with, like, a Billy Corgan. Mm -hmm. You know, so, like, Billy Corgan would write a song, and he's got a cool guitar riff, Uh but then he almost has to sing in a really, like, uncomfortable range for him. And then you get the whininess. Yeah, uh, so you get that. But you don't get any of that with with the Foo Fighters mm -hmm. and Dave Grohl. So I feel like almost out of the gate, he's already recognizing maybe something of where his range, Mm -hmm. you know, I hate to say limitation, but I mean, it's real. I mean, we all have limitations of what we can and can't do, what we can and can't sing, that sort of thing. And so I feel like he's working within those parameters and within that is able to craft something that's really interesting and actually... Plays to his strengths rather than kind of highlights his weaknesses.
1: Yeah, I don't at any point on this record I never get the sense that he's overstepped his abilities and his resources as a singer. I think that's a really good point. He always plays to his strengths. Even later in the record, when you get some falsetto vocals and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. none of it feels stretched or awkward or anything like that. He he appears to be very confident and knowledgeable of what he can and can't do. Yeah, and this song also if we haven't already figured it out by now, reinforces how strong... I think you mentioned sequencing earlier in the Mm -hmm. the emotional sequence of the record. Yeah. But I think... I think the sequencing is flawless on this record. Yeah. And um, I definitely get a sense of it between Monkey Wrench and Hey Johnny Park. Uh, You know, they've got similar rock dynamics they are actually in the same key Mm -hmm. and typically if you put songs in the same key together on a rock record that could actually feel very redundant it could feel very boring and fatiguing for the listener depending on the context and it doesn't do that at all here they're both very dynamically in their own space but very complementary of one another in
0: one of the interviews, I think Dave opened up and said that Johnny Park was an old friend of his mm-hmm. from, uh, from childhood, kind of middle school age, and he kind of lost touch with him around that time. And he just kind of like named the song Hey Johnny Park just to try and see if the guy would maybe get back in touch with him because he'd you know, lost track of him over the years. But you know that, that kind of a little bit of, of nostalgia, a little bit of childhood kind of thrown in definitely I feel like works within this, this sort of therapy session kind of idea that he's trying to get across with the album. my poor brain is tracked for and this is one that Dave has described as being an experiment in dynamic shifts and you definitely get that with all kinds of different almost like a building dynamic there with the guitars and everything and for me like the guitar riffs on this feel similar to some of the stuff that we're getting on the debut album mm-hmm. but it also like the richness of the dynamics is what i really connect with about the color and the shape and that's the thing why you know, frankly, I mean, like you said, like I've never connected as deeply with that debut album. I mean, I know a lot of people have, it's highly acclaimed and a lot of people, you know, hold it up as one of the great albums of the 90s. But yeah. for me, it's just, I mean, it's fine, but its it, it doesn't capture me and draw me in in the same way in the Shape does. And I think part of that is the richness of these dynamics.
1: This might play to some of the production as well. You've got those kind of chirpy guitars. Mm-hmm mixed with what I suspect in the background is either maybe a Nashville tuned acoustic or a 12 string maybe. Long and short, Nashville tuning typically is like a 12 string. You rip off the duplicate strings, keep the high strings, and you Mm -hmm. get this real nice open jangly thing. I don't know if that's exactly what it is, but again, it's got a great dynamic range to it that plays into a more nuanced production than anything you get on the first record.
0: So when we come to the color and the shape, you know, the success of the first album had happened. And the record company is pushing them to make their their follow-up, and they go and they record. Um, I think in Woodenville, Washington, somewhere kind of outside Seattle or something, somewhere in Washington, mm-hmm. they record. Um, they record the album, Color and the Shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of tracks aren't on there, but you know, it was, it, for some reason, for whatever reason, it didn't seem to be sitting with Gil Norton, the producer. It didn't seem to be sitting well with Dave. And over the break, you know, over Christmas break or whatever, he kind of went back home and was thinking about everything and ends up deciding to come back in and recut really, frankly, most of the album. Mm -hmm. And a large part of that is the drums. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he recuts the drums himself, even though, you know, William Goldsmith is a part is a band member of the Foo Fighters. But, um, you know, obviously there was some hurt. Feelings and frustration on, on Goldsmith's part with all that. But, you know, that's part of the, the story of this album.
1: Exactly. You brought it up. Dave was rethinking the sessions as he was listening back to probably mm-hmm. uh, just some rough mixes that they had. I believe uh, Gil Norton, the producer, had already expressed a lot of frustration with the rhythm section, even referring to them as the rhythmless section. <laughs> okay. Um, and so with that in mind, Dave, like you said, went forward. Rethought the arrangements, or decided to recut some drum parts. I think in the meantime, maybe wrote Everlong. Maybe yeah, he wrote Everlong space. and Walking After You. Walking After those
0: You. Those two tracks kind of happened in the in the space in
1: between. And so there was kind of a maybe a basic understanding that he was at least cutting those drums and maybe rethinking some other ones. But in the meantime, him recutting the drums and beginning to recut all the drums, he had to make phone calls to uh, Nate and Pat. Because that would affect what they did rhythmically. Right. So that would affect the bass parts a lot. And so he's like, Nate, I need you to come here and recut some bass. Mm-hmm. And Pat, I need you to recut some guitars. And Pat's like, I just re- I just cut those guitars. Yeah. And so he's like, okay. And then as it kind of moved forward and more and more parts were being cut, William Goldsmith was left out. Right. Nate and William are old bandmates from Sony Day Real Estate, like okay. we mentioned. And so William became aware of what was going on and was like, "Well, do I need to be there?" And and Dave's like, "No, no, no, no. It's okay. Um, I'm just taking care of a couple things." And then when William talked to Nate, Nate's like, um, "Is that what Dave told you? Like he's just cutting a couple of parts? Right. He's recutting the whole record." Yeah. And so needless to say, William was heartbroken. Uh, even going so far, I think in the documentary, the back and forth documentary. I mean, it really I mean, cut him to his heart, his soul. Yeah. But even beyond that. You know, I get this sense that Dave even realizes that he didn't do that right. But he went back to William and said, I want you to be in the band. Mm-hmm. You know, I did this, but I really want you to be the Foo Fighters drummer. And William was yeah. very conflicted about that and felt very torn and said, no, thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think William was already probably a little bit frustrated with the process of recording this album. Um, you know, in, in those those first sessions, He says that they they recorded some tracks as many as 96 takes he took on some of those things. You know, just hours of playing the same track over and over again and trying to get those drums right and just feeling like he was never able to please Dave and and Gil and...
1: Exactly, and the thing is, that's what it comes down to. It just comes down to Dave and Gil's overall vision for the record. William's a great drummer. I love Sunny Day Real Estate. Mm -hmm. He's got his own style. He's actually a very aggressive, just much more of an in-the-moment kind of feel player. Mm -hmm. If you listen to some of those early Sunny Day records and that sort of thing, and they went on to do quite a few other projects, William's a great drummer. So it's not to say that he's not a great drummer. It just wasn't exactly what they envisioned. Um, Although now you can go on Spotify and hear the title song, Color in the Shape, It wasn't on okay. the original pressing. Right. Yeah, That's William Goldsmith. That's a great, super aggressive track. Probably feels a little bit more like the first Foo Fighters record. Yeah, it does for me. Yeah. But that would be a good example. I think the drums on that track feel great. I think they're perfect for the song, but maybe it wasn't perfect on the other songs, or maybe it just didn't have the exact right feel, but they're just different players.
0: Well, and David said That, you know, some part of him, he felt like maybe wasn't completely ready to just completely hand over the drums. You know, he still something of him liked being a drummer and he still wanted to have his hand in that. So
1: Right. So, I mean, talk about therapy session. That's obviously something he was working through at that time. Yeah.
0: I mean, but you're talking about one of the great drummers of the 90s and arguably of of modern rock music. So, you know, it... (laughs) I love the drums on this album, yeah. and I think a lot of that is Dave. Sure. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think he made the right call, even if he didn't make it in the right way. And, you know, it ended up kind of fracturing the band there for for a short time, too.
1: Well, you had a similar situation in the Smashing Pumpkins Siamese dream record where Billy took over guitar and bass duties. Right. You know, and they would rationalize it at the time as something about efficiency or vision. And I'm not going to argue with Simon's Dream, and I'm definitely not going to argue with the color and the shape, but obviously there's a whole nother level of issues when it co- comes to your friends yeah. and how you relate to people and communicate effectively with people. So again, I get the sense that even Dave knows that he didn't go about that the right way.
0: We'll wind up is track five. We get this really gritty kind of guitar riff here. Um, low opener with the high note riff, kind of over the verses. you know, and. Foo Fighters lived in the shadow of Nirvana, obviously for a while. They're starting to to really step out and, and present their own sound and their own dynamics and be respected, hopefully, more on their own terms. I think clearly they they have been. History sure. bears witness to that. But in a lot of ways, this feels like an homage to Nirvana. I mean, this I don't know. This track kind of sounds like Drain You. Think. Oh, never mind. Yeah, I you know. Can get that. So, you know, I mean. He adds a real sense of heaviness to this with uh, with everything that's going on in the production, but you know, I, I I feel like Dave and Dave is Dave was very much a part of Nirvana. I mean, it's it's easy to just say, you know, Nirvana exists as Kurt Cobain, but I mean, Dave was a drummer. He was one of three parts of this this collective whole mm-hmm. that made up Nirvana. And, you know, he would have collaborative say on some things and be part of the direction of Nevermind. And
1: Well, definitely. I mean, again, folks can go back and listen to our Nirvana episode, but we clearly make a distinction of how big of an impact Dave had on their career and on their sound, on their sonics. It's very clear from Bleach to Nevermind. I mean, that's all you have to do is listen to those two <laughs> right. records back to back, and you get the idea of the difference Dave can make in a band. Yeah. I love how heavy this song is. Um, I'm a sucker. You know, I, I like heavy music probably quite a bit more than you do. Mm-hmm. I love all the screaming on this record. Um, and I love just the bigness of how the guitars build. But by the time you get to the last verse in the song, he's just slaying it on the vocals, just screaming guttural, you know, at the top of his lungs. And the guitars by the last i think half of the last verse they just pull out the higher guitars and it's just the low chunky guitars Mm -hmm. it's awesome man i mean i'm just a sucker for these i was a big fan at the time i'm still a big fan shamelessly you know in my mid-30s driving around cranking up loud rock music my kids get on to me my (laughs) wife gets on to me so
0: yeah it's it's a great rock and roll number for sure Track six is up in arms, you've got two parts here, kind of the slow, clean version versus the fast, kind of distorted, almost punk version. Mm -hmm. Uh, The slow part has a similar feeling to "Doll." Uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a teenage love song. Um, it's almost Weezer-like in its simplicity, I
1: feel like. Well, again, we've mentioned it before, Nate Mendel. You get a crazy complicated bass line in the song, <laughs> even in kind of the, the brevity that is the uh, short intro. Mm-hmm. And by the way, William Goldsmith, I think, is credited with, yeah, is. with the slow part. I remember reading that uh, early on when I was a teenager, reading the mixed credits there. It said, <laughs> William, you know, slow drums. And I was like, okay, wh- whatever. Um, so, yeah, you, you get that Nate walking Mm bass line on this song. You know, this is probably one of the few moments on this record I might kind of split hairs on uh, the drum intro on this, the loud drum thing. It's kind of silly. It's actually the kind of thing that there might be camps of folks who are just, strangely enough, or understandably maybe not Big Dave Grohl fans, and a drum feel like this... (laughs) is one of the reasons they may not be it's super over the top it's way too much that digga, 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 digga. and it's really kind of wipe out sounding Yeah. Um, but at the same time that's what makes Dave Grohl so endearing that's what we loved about him in Nirvana he always has this kind of bar room drummer kind of feel that uh, you know guys who don't know anything about drums get mm-hmm. and um, you get that flair in that part in the song and again it's silly but it's great and it's part of the song
0: one of the nice little flourishes that I like is the melodic guitar solo. Oh, yeah. And it jumped out at me because I, I suddenly realized, listening back to this album, this album doesn't have a whole lot of guitar solos. I no. mean, it's a great guitar record, mm-hmm. but like you don't get those those kind of big wailing guitar moments and, and even kind of the more kind of melodic even guitar solo moments. You get one here, but... but not a whole lot else on this record.
1: Yeah, it's totally perfect on this song, and it makes it that much more memorable. Every time it comes up, I'm kind of singing along with it, which really, to me, I've mentioned this before in other conversations, whether it's Tom Petty or this or that, I love just simple, singable guitar lines, and Mm -hmm. this definitely falls into that category. I think it's perfect. Uh, And speaking of the guitarists, I love the guitars on this album. There's nothing complicated about the guitars on this album. He uh, actually I only recently understood um, what guitar he's playing on the record, I knew it was a Gibson because you always see him play either with the Explorer, with the Mm -hmm. offset kind of edges or something like that. But what he actually prefers, I've come to understand, is this uh, Gibson called a Trini Lopez, which it's just got these weird, instead of F holes, it's got these diamond-shaped kind of holes. It's a hollow body, basically a 335 type thing with, in my opinion, a kind of tacky headstock. I believe he bought it probably in the early 90s with Nirvana and was just attracted to the kind of bizarre look of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of the backbone of most, if not all, the Foo Fighters records. So either way you slice it, it's a Gibson. He just tends to like that one. In fact, he has a signature model now that pretty much looks like the Trini Lopez. Um, But as far as guitars are concerned, I think I really fell in love with the uh, Rat pedal. It's just a small black distortion pedal made by a company called Proco. I own one, and the only reason I do pretty much is because of this record. It just really gets that throaty, mid-range kind of mm-hmm. thing that's going on there. Not that that's happening in everything. It's probably nice Vox amps and that sort of thing. But I'm confident in it occurs in most of the highlights of this record. Um, so, yeah, I love the guitars on this record. So
0: what is, what is the Gibson guitar able to give you sonically that, uh, you know, like a— Stratocaster or something wouldn't?
1: Typically, like a Strat or a Telecaster, anything in the Fender world, um, I know the Telecaster has very pronounced mid-range frequencies, but you're not getting like the body that you get with the Gibson. And then, in the case of a Strat, a lot of people like Strats because it kind of slices those mids a little bit, kind of scoops them out. You can think more traditional guitar players. Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, I think, David Gilmore maybe played a Strat. More finesse, nuanced players probably tend to like Strats. I prefer Gibsons. I know the reason Dave would like a Gibson is because it's just kind of got more of everything. Mm -hmm. It's got more bitey highs, real nice, thick, throaty kind of mids, good bass response. In my opinion, it doesn't get better in rock music than playing a Gibson guitar. It just puts you way out front, it's super aggressive, it responds really well to any of these overdrive pedals and that sort of thing, and it keeps the noise level down. Typically a Fender would get pretty noisy if you push the game too much.
0: So a Gibson would kind of sit uh, in a similar way to the way that Dave plays the drums.
1: Sure, yeah, that's a very good explanation for it. Loud, aggressive, peaking, you know, in the red. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just the way he kind of approaches everything he does. (laughs)
0: My Hero is track seven. It's hard not to love the drum rhythm of this one Mm -hmm. mixed with those jangly high note riffs before the main kind of driving riff. Um, I don't know, this feels like one of those key foundational tracks of um, what will become the kind of 2000s emo movement. I mean, this feels like this song kind of encapsulates a lot of what's going to happen there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got that somewhat kind of half-timed Kind of drum feel but really strong in fact this song is so ingrained in my psyche that anytime i'm even sitting at my desk or you know the dinner table kind of drumming on the table <laughs> i'm probably doing my hero or i'm trying to do some sort of variation of it i love the drum sounds i'm not exactly sure how they achieve the intro there i'm suspecting there's some sort of doubling maybe okay. of the toms or that sort of thing but when they play it live I mean Taylor Hawkins pulls it off just fine with a really strong kick drum kind of thing um, this song is great uh, you've got the nice the bass line is actually a little more straightforward on this song yeah the guitars are very melodic um, not that they haven't been on the other songs but they're just particularly melodic on this the way he moves kind of those octave chord forms that we might get from Billy Corgan or something like that and it follows the vocal there goes as he goes. Mm-hmm. And it kind of helps reinforce kind of all the elements of the song. And thematically, we've, we've
0: started to move a little bit beyond just kind of your standard issue breakup album. I mean, this is not um, kind of within that relational context. Dave has described it as talking about more ordinary, everyday heroes. There goes my hero, he's ordinary. Of course, that was another misheard line. I always heard not <laughs> "always heard Sergeant Mary." <laughs> Sergeant Mary. So he's not
1: talking about Kurt in this song.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, the fans have. There's apparently a large group of fans who believe that this song is talking about Kurt Cobain. I don't know. I don't know that Dave would ever admit to that because that feels a little too maybe maybe too sentimental for Dave to admit to. Yeah. Um, but. I, I think for Dave probably Kurt would fall into this category I mean I think I think Dave would look at Kurt as there being something kind of ordinary about him Mm -hmm. and sort of his his I don't know like a a working class I don't know mentality about it or something you know I mean just kind of coming in and writing some rock songs and then going home having a beer or whatever you know I mean but you know Dave has never indicated as much because Dave has specifically talked about how you know, when Nirvana fell apart, which it happened because of course Kurt Cobain committed suicide, he considered quitting music altogether. Mm-hmm. And really part of the way that the Foo Fighters emerges is just his way of partially just working through the death of friend and bandmate and collaborator and you know someone that he obviously respected and liked working with.
1: And he took a big risk pursuing the Foo Fighters project as well because around that time Tom Petty came knocking on his door. um, (laughs) That's right, yeah. And basically offered him a gig in the Heartbreakers. Oh, yeah. And for one reason or another, Dave took a big chance and told Tom Petty no. Yeah. Um, I guess having a sense at that time that maybe the Foo Fighters would work out. And again, that was still early on when he was just like cutting that first record. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... That, that, that's pretty bold <laughs> and I'm sure very scary but maybe that would give you a sense of how unsure or sure, I don't know which way you would take that, yeah. just a, a general sense of where Dave was at that time, I mean to, to hang up the phone on Tom Petty and go, no I'm going to try something else.
0: Well Dave does seem to have this unassuming sense of confidence about him and that really carries through this album and I think through most of the stuff that they've done track A to see you and this is this is just really to me one of those things that makes this a Foo Fighters thing I mean mm-hmm. I feel like you've got some seventh chords going on here yep. and um, you've got another kind of dynamic bass line it's one of the lighter songs it kind of fits within that that whole therapy thing apparently they had redone the drums um, on the that second set of sessions because he wanted them to sound a little more like crazy things oh, Called right. love
1: yeah, he's a huge Queen fan.
0: I, I can definitely hear it once once I read that, it, it all made sense, this song.
1: Well, like you said, this song definitely continues in that legacy of that kind of toothy grinned shtick kind of thing, a big me, you know, which I think is just a genuinely kind of silly side mm-hmm. of Grohl that we are already mentioned. I mean, we know in his career, he even went on to record records with Jack Black and his Tenacious D project. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm just not a fan of. That's just not my thing. But even uh, in one of the Muppet movies in the last maybe four or five years. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He, he appeared in like this fictitious band called the Muppets. <laughs> See, I, I think the deal is that uh, Fozzie took... Um, his his gig out to Vegas or something like that and was going to play like Muppet songs, but kind of change the lyrics, right. hence the Muppets. And right. they, they do this rainbow connection thing and Kermit comes and tracks him down <laughs> to try to get the band back together. And if you look in the background, you see Dave back there just being Dave. Yeah. And like this song to me speaks of the Muppets, you know? <laughs>
0: I mean, but that's that's so Dave, like to end up in a Muppet movie. Like it doesn't feel forced, it doesn't feel it just feels like right. of course he would be playing drums for Fozzie Bear.
2: Enough
0: space is the next track, track nine. Apparently this was specifically designed because they needed a new show opener on their European tour, another song to kinda of pull out as a as an opening track and i think it would serve that purpose quite well because it's a it's a great rocker
1: well he yeah i've heard him describe the differences between the crowds in america and europe at the time in america mid late 90s everybody was shoving and moshing and Mm -hmm. this and that uh in europe apparently it all kind of had this bounce (laughs) to it so it was more of like an up and down kind of movement than Mm -hmm. i guess the side to side and so in his mind Um, He was trying to figure out the tempo and the feel for the song, and he just kind of visualized the way that they move, kind of up and down and bounce and jump and that sort of thing, and that's where the tempo of the song came from. Um, I I find that real fascinating um, to think of just that kind of grassroots, kind of underground rock band kind of sense of we're on the road, we need to do something exciting tomorrow. I mean, he may have put this together within a day or two, maybe day of, the show and just was like we need to stir things up and just kind of getting this concept kind of birthed out of this idea um at that time maybe regardless of content or whatever just getting people moving giving getting people excited and ready to move forward with the show the riff on
0: here feels very similar to you remember on in utero radio friendly Mm -hmm. unit shifter of course that live and loud concert that Nirvana did Mm -hmm. uh, opens up with this track I think and you know it's it's kind of a a good example this song of the differences that that kind of stark difference between Kurt's approach and Dave's approach I mean the the radio-friendly unit shifter I mean that's that's much more raw much real chaotic yeah it's got a real chaos and kind of punk edge to it and there is, there is some edginess in, in Dave's approach, but it is much more polished, and you definitely kind of get that arena rock kind of sense with, mm-hmm. with the opening of this song. Yeah, he's much
1: more aware of the dynamics and how it's going to play to the crowd. And again, the drumming, the huge triplet drum fill that intros this song. I love it every time. The screaming, um, it's not terribly prevalent outside of this album actually throughout the Foo's career I mean you can yeah. get a sense of that in some of their live shows and you get a hint of it in but some of the but there's a lot of
0: yelling on this album
1: there is and that probably plays to some of that therapeutic mm-hmm. uh, line that you mentioned I think where we get a more kind of emotional version of the screaming is a couple of years later when they released that Best of You song from the In Your Honor album
2: Is someone get in the, back,
1: the and uh it's a very emotional and song, I think it was a very big hit single, but it's really just screaming. Now, it's not quite at this level, but I think this more raw, underground kind of sense gives him an opportunity later in his career to still express himself in the ballpark of that in a way that communicates to a much wider audience than would typically listen to anything like this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely did for me because I didn't listen to music with a whole lot of screaming, but... I've always kind of liked the screaming on this album. This song in particular is one of my favorite uses of it on the record. But, you know, I mean, he definitely mainstreamed it in a, in a certain way if you mm-hmm. want to use that kind of phraseology yep. for someone like me. And, um, well, you know, I think you, I like
1: it. <laughs> you notice a lot of times if you ever watch those performances, typically even at this time or anytime you watch the Foos perform, he's probably got a stick of gum or something in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's just some sort of like, uh, cigarette suppressant or anything like that I think he does that to lubricate his throat Now that's not unique to Dave Grohl sure. But obviously his vocal style Is so aggressive mm-hmm. um, I think that's why you usually see him that way He's got to have something to get him through the show And honestly The performances I've seen I've never actually seen him live But I've seen live performances I've got an old DVD from the One by One tour I never get any sense of fatigue really In what he's doing which is pretty amazing
0: Track 10 is February Stars This has always been Ever since I first kind of found it Tucked away here at Track 10 on this album It's always been one of those That I just love to crank up in my car When I was in high school And just drive around at mm. night And just wait for that big build The, the huge February Stars kind of part
1: And so. Again, that would definitely be a precursor To a lot of the emo stuff we get later um, that would have harkened even back to, again, Sunny Day Real Estate. Those guys were emo pioneers, so that sense of big dynamics, pulling the tempos back just a little bit, but also keeping the guitars nice and big. One of my favorite 90s bands um, that's kind of unheralded is a band called Hum. And they always had kind of similar dynamics. Mm. Now, timeline, I'm not necessarily saying one spoke to the other necessarily. Right. But it's definitely a dynamic I'm also very partial to.
0: It's funny that I never got into any of that emo stuff, really. I mean, you, you made a pitch for Jimmy Eat World and stuff mm-hmm. for a while. I never sat down with it, really. Yeah. I mean, as much as I loved this album, it didn't drive me to anything else similar to it. I got you. So,
1: well, it's waiting for you if you want it. <laughs>
0: So you've got the whole big second half of the song, but this song really feels like a song about perseverance. I think it's just one of those I don't know that February means anything, stars necessarily means anything, but it's just one of those kind of word pictures that somehow I don't know somehow communicates more than than just the words kind of smashed together mean. Sure. You know, so it's just I kind of get the sense of reflection, determination, and that's why I love it kind of placed here at track 10 because it's really pushing us forward into a more optimistic and and more hopeful kind of end to this record so we've kind of come through some rage we have kind of come through some frustrations of the relationships but there is a light at the end of the tunnel and for me kind of that turning point here is february stars
1: it definitely has a sense of delicacy to it Um, even just again in the Mm -hmm. the name february stars that word picture to me just feels very nice and delicate hence those kind of you know, higher guitar parts that intro it, and, and how he's all...
0: almost just humming mm-hmm. that that intro part. Yeah, on the vocals.
1: Again, nothing new with the dynamics here, but he does all of the best things that you can do with these dynamics. Even, I can tell that as the song's going production-wise, it feels like they just keep adding a guitar or two. Not that you're getting to this, like, Billy Corgan wall of sound kind of thing necessarily, Mm -hmm. but by the end of the song, I like how you can actually hear some of the overdubs come in. Yeah. Um with kind of the sliding down the neck. I I, I think I probably picked that up from him or Billy Corgan or something. Like a lot of times, um, if I was tracking a guitar solo or something like that, I think it was just to get myself psyched up and excited Mm -hmm. about what was going on. I would kind of just rear into it. And it's probably speaking back to something from this record. And you really hear that very pronounced uh, on the guitars at the end of the song. It gives it tons of excitement and uh, immediacy.
0: It's a great song. It's been one of my favorites for a long time. Well, track 11 is Everlong. This is the track that the record companies wanted to be the, f- the first single. Mm. Dave actually fought for, for Monkey Wrench because yeah. he just felt like he liked starting out aggressive and then and then moving to something that has a more rich and full dynamic that yeah. you get with Everlong. I think he was right on. I think the sequencing of the single releases even works sure. in that way. Yep. I don't know. This is probably the greatest Foo Fighters song of all time. Yep. I mean, one of the best songs of the 90s, if not one of the best songs
1: ever. It's a perfect rock song. It's got all the emotion there. It's got the phenomenal guitar parts. It's got the driving drums. Mm-hmm. I know that something kind of stuck out to you with the drum part there, the double-time hi-hat. Yeah,
0: it's it's like a new wave beat. So mm-hmm. he, he's got the riff, and then the, the new wave beat kind of hits in like a talking head's I-Zimbra.
1: Mm-hmm, from the uh, the fear of music record,
0: yeah, off of fear of music. Yep. So I mean, you know, and that's that's an interesting different dynamic than you get from from Dave. Of course, you've you've still got some big drum moments sure, in sure. this. Sure, lots of big drum. Yeah. But that's just a different flourish than you get anywhere else on the record, or from uh-huh. what you might even expect from Dave. So it even speaks to some of his diversity of of musical interests and influences.
1: I, I have memories um, of so much time that I've spent with this record specifically this song back when I was in college um, the roommates um, I was living with at the time one of them uh, had a drum kit and he would keep it uh, down in the basement uh, next to the washer and dryer and that sort of thing and sometimes when I just had time to myself which I apparently did a lot at that time (laughs) I didn't spend too much time in class I would take this record specifically, and in in my kind of wildest dreams of being a rock and roll drummer, I would try to play this album, Uh which in a sense, that that speaks to who Dave is. I had a sense that I could do it, (laughs) right? which is not accurate. So
0: you weren't able to do it?
1: Not entirely, and I would really feel that, especially most of the songs in particular. I'd try to play Monkey Wrench." tempo is totally pushed, I'd really kind of struggle, I'd do okay with that. But I get to Everlong and I'm just like, I could barely make it to a verse. Right. It just felt like a complete uh, just workout. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, the drums are phenomenal on this and and I always wish that I could keep up with this.
0: And this is one of the songs that he wrote in between the, those first initial sessions, you know, the, that second set of sessions that they did in January and February of 97 that really com- comprised most of what we got here. So Walking After You and Everlong, he ended up riding in that break. And I mean, I'm obviously everyone is glad that he did mm-hmm. because it really was missing this kind of just clear kind of standout track that just kind of, you know, so many great songs on this, but this is just on a whole other level.
1: And I remember even at the time promoting the record. And since then, you'll hear him play this acoustic. And sometimes it even has a more elevated sense of intensity when he Mm -hmm. plays it acoustically, so it translates in any form. It's just a great song.
0: Walking After You is track 12, and where we begin, you know, with the demise of a relationship, now this is, I, I feel the narrative arc, like, and that's, I guess, one of the things that I connect with Color and the Shape on, is that I really feel the narrative arc here. So. You get this sense of new love, new life, new hope, maybe a new relationship, and that he's not just kind of wasted and left there to, you know, kind of die and figure things out on his own, but there is a sense of of maybe there is an, a new love in his life, or at least the hopefulness that that he can move beyond kind of the heartbreak of a divorce.
1: Especially when you compare it to like a record that would have been a contemporary previous to this, maybe the Melancholy record, the Smashing Pumpkins, I know we talked about that. My goodness, you can't get any farther apart in emotion, which again is I think I can much more gladly come to this record Mm -hmm. uh, for that very reason because you get that lift here.
0: And apparently there was an alternate version. I don't know if you ever had that for the X-Files yeah for the X-Files movie that was released in 98 they apparently went in and re-recorded this so there's a whole other kind of it's not just a different mix it's a whole separate recording
1: I never had a copy of it but I remember when I moved to the Nashville area in the late 90s um, I finally had Decent Rock Radio surrounding me Mm -hmm. and I think I heard a cut of that one day and I was like whoa what's that? it is
0: quite different if you are familiar with the, the color and the shape version, but um, you know it stands out just as much. I think some people prefer it to this one.
1: This song really, in my opinion, seals his status as just a genuinely great and nuanced rock writer mm-hmm. and performer. Um, and we get more of these uh, throughout the Foo's career. Some of the later albums, actually, I think the follow-up album, the uh, Nothing Left to Lose, mm-hmm. there's a track on there called Ain't It the Life. It the
2: life? It the life?
1: There's a track on there called Aurora, yeah, yeah, which is, Aurora is not necessarily an acoustic track, but you get that same really s- kind of subdued, sensitive vocal there. Later on, the In Your Honor double album, which I'm not really a fan of, You get a couple of uh, really sweet kind of standout acoustic tracks. Mm -hmm. One's called On The
2: Mend."
1: Another one's called Miracle.
2: miracle.
1: To me, all of those owe a lot to what he establishes here with walking after you to give, to pave the way, to give him that credibility to um, present those kind of arrangements.
0: Well, the last track of the album is "New Way Home," and you know we really do end in a more hopeful place here. I mean, even that riff has that kind of lift to it that gives it that sense of optimism.
1: Well, you even get a tambourine too. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: yeah, I guess there is a tambourine there. Um, strangely, I mean, I guess this could have been an album opener in in a completely different you know world because it kind of has it carries that that same sort of thing that you'd want from an album opener. Mm-hmm. But I love it as an album closer here. I love it as the last the last song in color and in the shape.
1: Yeah. He there's so much to love about this. You get the signature quirky Dave Ness, almost a Dave Ness, uh, there. <laughs> you get that um those cool turnarounds and the chords. You, mm-hmm. get, you get the Dave chords that follow his vocals so well or vice versa, or the vocals mm-hmm. follow the chords. I love the way it does all that. I love all the kind of sudden stops that you get in between the parts, yeah. and again, we mentioned he throws that tambourine in there. I'm not sure if we heard that on any other place in <laughs> the record, but that immediately just kind of makes you feel better. Oftentimes, will put you in a good mood. Right. And then the huge outro. Of yeah. course, the dynamics come way down, and you, at the time, I thought that my Discman maybe had run out of batteries or something. <laughs> I thought something was wrong, and it gets all whispery and super, super quiet, and yeah. I, I didn't have a great stereo anyway, and then you turn it up, and then it gets loud, and it blows your speakers out, and that sort of thing. <laughs> but one of the coolest things that he does in this song, and I don't know how consciously he did it or it just kind of worked, he ends up putting these extra measures on the tags on what I would call the chorus, you know, that I felt like this on my way, and and every time he says, um, I'm not scared. Mm-hmm. What really makes that line punch out is it's an uneven measure.
2: I'm not scared. I pass I'm not
1: scared. You get hmm. you get five measures in that chorus, would typically. Most folks would be more comfortable turning around after an even number, maybe four. And so you get these measures and then he counts up to a fifth measure and you get that I'm not scared. And and it's kind of this interesting punch that turns the lines back around in kind of an unexpected way. And the chords end up shifting between this kind of major and minor thing Mm -hmm. that happened a lot in the 90s. The 90s were all about uh, kind of blurring the lines between what was major and what was minor. I mean, Nirvana did that all the time. Alice in Chains did it all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was conscious. Sometimes they just really didn't know how to write a song, and they accidentally put (laughs) major-minor chords together. Um, But this is like the best version of that because it pulls those emotions in and out, and that extra measure to me gives it just that extra level of tension right at the end of the album.
0: So as we wrap up our conversation about Coloring the Shape, I mean, I kind of wonder where does this live culturally? I mean, obviously the Foo Fighters are extremely popular. They're still on tour. There's still a lot of people really connecting with what they're doing musically.
1: Mm -hmm. They just released a new single.
0: Yeah, so people are still loving the Foo Fighters, obviously. But I don't know that this album has really kind of gained the status that we would think of for, I mean, really in my mind, I mean, this is a top 10 album of the 90s, mm-hmm. easily, maybe even top five. Sure. But it doesn't seem to live there with the same respect as something like a Nevermind or an OK Computer or, you know, something like that. I mean, what is it? Like, why isn't this album up there kind of on everybody's list?
1: I don't know. It's Until you ask the question, I haven't thought about it much, except it might go back to something similar to our Tom Petty conversation. He really hasn't had much of any clunkers. Mm. of a record. I mean, as much as the first record is not entirely memorable, it's still a fun record. right? And it's got a good vibe, obviously, Colonial Shape, Nothing Left to Lose. Uh, The One by One thing or whatever was a bit of a clunker to me. They continue to consistently release great music. So I don't know, it might be kind of that Tom Petty thing where it gets lost in the mix of many other great Tracks that he's recorded and records that they've recorded. Now, as a fan, it stands out to me and right. and you, as we just mentioned. But I don't know. I mean, that could be somewhat of a thought on there.
0: I guess what's funny is I never really dug into anything that the Foo Fighters did after this. Oh, really? Like I, I never bought the Nothing Left to Lose album, and I never have really listened to much that the Foo Fighters have done since then. I just kind of live with the color and the shape almost yeah. exclusively as my view of the Foo Fighters.
1: Sure, and it's hard to get away from. Again, as a fan, this is definitely where I love to return as much as I enjoy some of the other songs. Front to back, this album is perfect to me I'll just say that outright I think the sequencing is perfect everything sounds great on this record the songs are great Uh, despite some of the vagueness that might be there I don't think it hinders what's going on Mm -hmm. I think you still feel everything that you should feel listening to this record regardless of what he's saying or not saying or how much you do or don't understand
0: thank you for listening to The Completist in our next podcast we will look at the album Violator by Depeche Mode If you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or SoundCloud. And you can always find us on our website, completestpodcast.com.